0: Hi, I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Chad Pfeiffer.
1: And we want to tell you about a new feature that's on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast website.
0: That's right. It's a uh, donate button there at hppodcraft.com. And uh, we want to be clear, the show is free. Free. Always will be free. Always will be free, and you don't owe us anything. However, there are some costs associated with us producing the show. So if you could donate any amount, if you donate uh, $20 or more before the end of the year, we will send you a soundtrack CD featuring many of the pieces of music that we've used in the podcast. So far?
1: Mostly by Chad Pfeiffer. All original content.
0: So if you could uh, just log on to our site at hppodcraft.com, hit that donate button. You can donate via PayPal. We'll accept that money from you, and if it's $20 or more, we'll send you the CD. So please donate. Thanks, folks, and welcome to the HP
2: Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPpodcast.com When the last days were upon me, and the ugly trifles of existence began to drive me to madness, like the small drops of water that torturers let fall ceaselessly upon one spot of their victim's body. I loved the irradiate refuge of sleep. In my dreams I found a little of the beauty that I had vainly sought in life, and wandered through old gardens and enchanted woods.
1: That was an excerpt from Ex Oblivione. Ex Oblivione. Which is... uh... Latin for from oblivion or oh. out of oblivion. you yeah, go. And our reader today is none other than the illustrious Andrew Lehman.
0: That's right. And we're doing, uh, well, another double feature, although it's less of a double feature today, more of a short and then a feature. And then a feature, <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, our short being Ex Oblivion yes? and
1: our feature being uh, The Nameless City. The Nameless City. Ex Oblivione is really, a, I guess it's a prose poem. So well, that's was, what they call it. That's what they call it. It's really just a very short
2: story. Yeah, that's what
0: i call it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's, uh, well, it's it's written by a guy who's clearly near death, and uh, he's tired of life's mundanity, and he finds refuge in
1: sleep. This is very similar to uh, Cellophane. Yeah, it is. You know, this is a guy who doesn't like life, and he wants to go to the land of dreams where right. things are better, and he feels happier. And...
0: Now, as opposed to Cellophane, he actually spends very little time talking about all the dreamlands that he voyages to yeah he says i you know i prefer the refuge of sleep and once i went to this place which mm-hmm. he dispatches in a sense and, and once i went to this other place yeah, right. and then uh, went to a golden valley and then he says yeah.
2: yeah and once i walked through a golden valley that led to shadowy groves and ruins and ended in a mighty wall green with antique vines and pierced by a little gate of bronze." It's a large gate, it's golden, mm-hmm.
1: and it has vines and plants that are kind of wrapped around the edges of it. Yeah, and, and he, he tries to find the latch on it. Yeah, but he but he can't. He can't do it.
0: During his wanderings, though, he arrives at this dream city, which he calls Zakarian. Yes. And there he finds a papyrus that uh, contains the thoughts of dream sages and tells of this gate. So, so he kind of does some research. That's
1: and right, he does. scholarly, yeah.
2: Some of the dream sages wrote gorgeously of the wonders beyond the irrepassable gate, but others told of horror and disappointment. I knew not which to believe, yet longed more and more to cross forever into the unknown land. For doubt and secrecy are the lure of lures, and no new horror can be more terrible than the daily torture of the commonplace. So when I learned of the drug which would unlock the gate and drive me through, I resolved to take it when next I awaked.
0: Barely, <laughs> this is like the anarchist cookbook of the dreamland. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he tells you how to make awesome drugs. <laughs> but, so he takes this drug when he wakes up, yes. puts him back down, and when he gets back to the shadow he grows, the gate is open.
1: Open, yeah. And there's this glow and music as he steps like That kind drum. of a white glow, I think is what it says. Yeah.
2: But as the gate swung wider and the sorcery of drug and dream pushed me through, I knew that all sights and glories were at an end. For in that new realm was neither land nor sea, but only the white void of unpeopled and illimitable space. So, happier than I had ever dared hope to be, I dissolved again into that native infinity of crystal oblivion from which the demon life had called me for one brief and desolate hour. Wow.
0: Yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> this story to me, and that's the end of the story. That's the end. The it's very short story. This story to me was, was about two things. Mm-hmm. It was about depression, yeah, and maybe a a bit a comforting bit about oblivion, yeah. When you're really low and all you want to do is sleep, the little mundane things like oh, I have to do dishes it just seems overwhelming. Uh-huh. You know, you can't get out of bed to do it. Yeah, this really nailed that feeling to yeah,
1: me. Yeah, it really it really did, and I, I think obviously Lovecraft has some you yeah. know, personal uh, issues and probably some heavy sadness that he's dealing with. And then there's <laughs> a quote from In Defense of Daga that I think really sums this up. He says, uh, "There's nothing better than oblivion." since in oblivion there's no wish unfulfilled
0: i actually that may sound strange but that makes me i like that i do too there's comfort in that actually there's there's no more struggling or fighting there's no more
1: fear there's no more pain there's no more there's no more
0: wanting and therefore there's no more desiring and therefore there's no feeling that you can't have things therefore there's no feelings of despair
1: right right? on the other end of that there's no happiness there's no joy but you can't have happiness or joy without having sadness and pain right i mean we're getting very philosophical now. Actually. Well, which, you know, that's I mean, the kind of, that's yeah. what
0: you get when you read something that's influenced by Schopenhauer. <laughs> who,
1: who, for me, is
0: actually, I'm a huge fan of that man's work as well. I,
1: I'm, I'm a Schopenhauer guy myself. Yeah. I, I thought that Ex Oblivione is, is really well written, and yeah. it really communicates an idea.
0: I think it's really well written as well, and in fact, regardless of whether they were a genre fan or not, I might even give this story to somebody who's dealing with some depression issues, because it's so nice to uh, be
1: understood. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, well, anyway, you know, this uh, story, too, uh, was written in either 1920 or 21, so we're getting into 1921 here. Okay. And uh, it was published in the United Amateur in 21, but he posted or posted it, yeah. <laughs> he wrote it under a pseudonym. Oh, right. Ward Phillips. Ward Phillips. Though so for some reason, um, Lovecraft wanted to sort of distance himself from yeah. this. But moving on to our...
0: Our feature today our is feature. Uh, The Nameless City.
2: When I drew nigh the nameless city, I knew it was accursed. I was traveling in a parched and terrible valley under the moon, and afar I saw it protruding uncannily above the sands as parts of a corpse may protrude from an ill-made grave.
0: Ugh, it reminds me of my... Uh, My dad, my pops, when I was a kid, used to tell me that some of the the poorer cemeteries around where he grew up, uh, and I don't know if this is true or not, but he said that the the graves were so shallowly dug that Uh when he was a kid, they'd walk by and they'd see hair growing up out of the ground. Right. I
1: don't know if that was true or not, man. I've heard you tell that story before, yeah. Yeah, because it scared me. It's really scary. (laughs) That image, I just imagined this. I think hair's pretty biodegradable, so I think that story is... Not very likely. Yeah, I think it was specifically uh, told to torture. Yeah, in my youth, that won't seem to work because uh, you're still
0: telling that story. I'm still telling it, and I and and folks, if you have kids, torture them with scary stories <laughs> because it breeds imagination, in my opinion. Oh, Get them yeah. reading this H.P. Lovecraft young. Oh right. Yeah. So they grow up crazy and, and thoughtful and imaginative, <laughs> and hopefully in their in their dreams, travel to nameless cities such as this. But this isn't a dreamland. story. No, no, and this, this is, is actually real. Don't. To a lot of people, they say this is really the first story in the Cthulhu
1: Mythos. Yeah, I've I've read that this is kind of stepping into it. There's a a a big phrase that's early on in this. Uh, story. Yeah. uh
0: Well, okay. So there's the city. It's nameless, but it's also apparently secret, right?
2: Yes. It is told of in whispers around campfires, and muttered about by grandams in the tents of sheikhs so that all the tribe shun it without wholly knowing why. It was of this place that Abdul al-Hazred, the mad poet, dreamed on the night before he sang his unexplainable couplet. That is not dead which can eternal lie. And with strange eons, even death may die.
1: Oh, yes. Boom. I didn't know that this was from The Nameless City. Yeah. I, the first time I ever uh, read this was in uh, Cthulhu. It's one of his most famous quotes,
0: and, and everybody associates it with Call of Cthulhu. So yeah. I didn't know it was here either. I've never read this story before. This uh, my n- first n- time neither did through. I, yeah. It's such a cool little couplet, too, really. you know, I reckon it means, um, for certain creatures, death is meaningless. Right. They can lay idle so long that they can outlast the lifespan of death itself. Right. But metaphorically, I mean, it, it concepts um, such as hatred or corruption or maybe even love, love or, or beauty are so eternal that they can outweigh death as well. I mean, right. there's a lot going on in just that, that couple of sentences. Right.
1: And also, this is uh, The Mad Arab pops up. This is the first yeah. time we ever get to see him.
0: Abdul read. he wrote The Necronomicon, although they don't mention the title of that book
1: in no. here. No, they don't.
0: And he was, what, ripped apart by strange forces in the middle of a bazaar Yeah, it's like, supposedly
1: like invisible demons ripped them up in the middle of uh, broad daylight in the middle of a bazaar. <sighs> wow. Really cool. This couplet <laughs>
0: sometimes reminds me of actually uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula when... Oh, really all, in that one moment in the book when Dracula says to them my revenge has just begun I spread it over centuries and time is on my side uh, always reminded me of that because I, I love that the supernatural force sees time differently
1: oh right sure yeah. so
0: for humans it's very finite yeah. but for the creature it says I can outweigh you yeah. and I can kill your grandchildren you yeah. know <laughs> and it's, it's horrific ah what can you do against somebody who's yeah. eternal well so and just like the protagonist of Dracula our protagonist in the nameless city he ignores the warnings of the townspeople
1: yeah, he wants to find this, this nameless city he, yeah, he wants know to know where find it is it.
0: in this case it's the Arabs who say don't don't go yeah. don't
1: don't try and find but it but he uh, hops on his camel and he yeah. heads off in the desert by himself goes out
0: in the wastelands and uh, he finds it at night but it's it's ghastly stillness kind of makes him forget that he should be happy about finding it right and he decides to wait for the dawn
1: well there's a series of storms too and
0: he so when he finds it, he waits outside of it with his camel and when dawn breaks, he goes into the city finally, mm-hmm. which he describes as, as older than any other city in the world.
1: Beyond any civilization that has existed.
0: Older than Egypt. Yes. And he can't find anything immediately suggest that men lived here. But he does say
2: there were certain Proportions and dimensions in the ruins, which I did not like.
0: I always love it when Lovecraft plays with the shape of things. And all these stories where the stairs are too steep or the right. dimensions are uh, non-Euclidean geometrically,
1: you know. In it. Well, it's a it's, it's a subtle kind of hint of, mm-hmm. of, of you know what what's to come. And, and yeah. of course, things are older. So I've been I've been in like older you know temples and things like that before, and they are small. They they oh, just yeah. seem weird. Uh, if the pyramids, if I've never personally been in there, but I've seen. You know my friends' pictures of them in the pyramids. They're tiny, tiny little. I, mean, I think if you're a big person, you can't actually fit through wow. it. Because the people were smaller. The right? people were smaller, <laughs> and they. I think those specifically with the pyramid, those were kind of supposed to be secret passages. They, you know, they were hiding. Oh, right. Yeah, they are hiding from grave robbers. Oh, how things. cool! But like the temples and and just the corridors and ways are all very small.
0: So you're saying that if knowing that about the pyramids, you probably would assume that the passages are small because of what you said. Yeah, exactly. Grave robbers, not because the creatures were small. No, no, no.
1: I at this point. I me being a person uh, who knows a little bit about ancient things, I would mm-hmm. think, "Oh yeah, of course it's a little small." Yeah, There's and something maybe... about it
0: I don't, I don't like. But right. Uh, So on this first expedition, that's really his only observation. He doesn't find anything, and he gets out of the city before night falls. But the next day, he goes back in. And he's looking around, and he imagines how mighty this city may have once been. And in this, he also thinks of Sarnath.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Uh, And he mentions it in the story. You know, this this could be like that ancient city of doomed Sarnath. He'll take references to real history and real literature. And he mixes it in with his own mythology Uh and his own history. And it lends this air of reality. Mm -hmm. And you don't really know. What? And
1: that's how, part of what Lovecraft, I mean, really strove to do. And he talked about it in his letters. Like he wanted a realism. He wanted to create a sense of realism. So he would, you know, mix in his stuff with real things. And then he would mix his new stuff in with stuff that he already written. Yeah. So the typical reader, I mean, would read these things and not necessarily know, unless you're a learned mm-hmm. scholar about ancient Greece or Egypt or right. whatever, you don't necessarily know which one, is, which ones are true. Yeah. And you're like,
0: like, okay, so is Memnon made up or is Sarnath made up? Right. One of these is, <laughs> is real. Uh, um, so on this second expedition, he finds a low cliff, and on the face of it are these small houses. He goes into these. He's excited. He finally found mm-hmm. something he can enter. And in them, he finds these primitive altars and pillars. Everything is really low to the ground.
1: Yeah, he, he's going to get on his knees and still crouch down. Yeah. Like he can't be on his knees and be up Something just seems off about the, the yep. whole thing.
2: I shuddered oddly in some of the far corners for certain altars and stones suggested forgotten rites of terrible, revolting, and inexplicable nature, and made me wonder what manner of men could have made and frequented such a temple.
0: So, night comes, but he says his discoveries so far have made him more curious than afraid, so this time he's not going to leave. Yeah. He keeps working. And he's he's in those little houses or temples, and then he hears the wind pick up outside, and he hears his camel getting upset. Uh-huh. His camel's like,
1: uh, I don't like it out here. I'm all, I'm all freaked <laughs> out. Well, there's a lot of winds and the, the uh, sandstorms, and it's, it's yeah. pretty treacherous. Nothing again supernatural yet at this point, no. I feel. It's He very comes outside mundane.
0: to see what, what's going on, and, mm-hmm. and there is this great wind kicking up sand, but it's not everywhere, and he traces the
2: path of the wind. All the way to this temple it poured madly out of the dark door sighing uncannily as it ruffled the sand and spread about the weird ruins soon it grew fainter and the sand grew more and more still till finally all was at rest again but a presence seemed stalking among the spectral stones of the city and when i glanced at the moon it seemed to quiver as though mirrored in unquiet waters
0: I thought that was such a beautiful description of the moon. Yeah, yeah. you
1: know, we get a lot of moon action in HP Lovecraft stories. Well, the moon—I mean,
2: it's he describes moon. it a
1: lot. Yeah. I mean, the moon is like the, the symbol of night. It's powerful, you know. Yeah, and like but most of the time, people aren't nocturnal, so you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Night, the Moving There's an a symbol of the unknown and darkness, and it's the one thing, you know, like, it's, a, it's great. Yeah, and of course I love it
0: the, just, uh, that it looks almost like its own reflection. So our protagonist waits for the wind to die down and enters this temple. At first he thinks it's a naturally occurring structure, you know, because yeah. obviously the wind's been pouring through it, so that would maybe have been helping mm-hmm. to erode. And, and it's carve huge, it it's gigantic. It's taller than the yeah. other structures. Mm-hmm. But the altars and whatnot that he finds in there are still squat and uh-huh. short. Go to the ground. He he finds that there are some carvings and painted records here. I imagine this is a little more like an Egyptian find in that the paintings are a little dusty and you know hard to make out
1: and right, on the walls and things, yeah.
0: Before he can really dig in, he notices with some fear I hear it says he grows faint <laughs> <laughs> there's an artificial door chiseled into the rock, and that's where the wind is coming from mm-hmm. in this temple. So uh he goes to that door and he enters it and sees these steps descending down steeply. They're really tiny.
1: Yeah, very small steps with a low ceiling.
0: Again, his curiosity overwhelms his fear and he decides to descend these steps he describes it as like he's climbing cautiously down as if he's on a rope ladder or right like yeah it. yeah
2: it is only in the terrible phantasms of drugs or delirium that any other man can have had such a descent as mine the narrow passage led infinitely down like some hideous haunted well and the torch I held above my head could not light the unknown depths toward which I was crawling I lost track of the hours and forgot to consult my watch, though I was frightened when I thought of the distance I must be traversing. There were changes of direction and of steepness, and once I came to a long, low-level passage where I had to wriggle feet first along the rocky floor, holding my torch at arm's length beyond my head.
0: Oh, forget it. Yeah. If
1: I, I don't care what's down there. I am not climbing, wriggling along the ground. Uh oh. I, I personally, I understand that ex- the, the excitement of this for this guy. I mean, I, at this point, I, would, I wouldn't i honestly be afraid. You wouldn't? No, no. Because, I mean, like, an old place mm. in the middle of the desert, there's nothing, there's going to be anything in there. Well, you're thinking as an archaeologist. I'm thinking as an archaeologist. There's not going to be any yeah. animals. There's not going to be, you know, yeah. it's, it. there's nothing in there. So nothing could hurt you. It's just. I'm you, just claustrophobic. Yeah, I think it might be a little claustrophobic. I would be very excited. And I, I, I empathize <laughs> okay. with the protagonist in this, that I think it's, I could see why he would be wanting to push on. I mean, he found this ancient pre human. Yeah. Or maybe pre human. I don't know. Chris, if we ever take this expedition, I'll stand outside with the phone wire and you go down there. All right, no
0: problem. Uh, no problem. One thing I loved about that last passage is, you know, when you use a simile often, when writers use similes, they do it because they want to be relatable, they'll say. Huh? You know, you use like or as to connect a, to a feeling, something that people can relate to. You say her flesh yes. was cold as ice. Everybody knows what yes. ice feels like. Sure, of course. I felt guilty as a scolded child. I like that he says uh, that the passage goes down like some hideous haunted well. <laughs> you know, as if the reader's going to go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, well, was, everybody's got a haunted well, but the one we had was hideous.
1: It's terrible. Oh, it was yeah. so yeah.
0: ugly. I know exactly what that's like. <laughs> But, you know, he's Lovecraft. It works somehow. It
1: works. It works. He's getting a little nervous, and he's starting to think about, at this point, uh, you know, the mad Arab again. Yeah.
0: His torch goes out as he's continuing down this passage. Oh, yes. yes. Oh, the, uh, well, I did want to mention the one thing that horrifies me about this, Chris, is he says it takes him hours to go down there. Right. I, I That bothers me, too. I mean, that means you're pretty deep in the earth.
1: Yeah. But,
0: you know, that's exciting. Uh, okay. Um, well, he... When his torch goes out, he starts thinking through passages from literature. And again, he mixes fictional authors like Alhazer the Mad Arab, as you mentioned, but, but with the, real writers. With Dunsany. Yeah, Dunsany yeah. and, and Thomas More, uh-huh. whom he quotes in a little passage. And anyway, he arrives at a level ground finally. And he's blown away to find himself in this, this passage that's lined by wooden and, and glass cases. Yeah, like but he only knows this by touching and feeling. Right, yeah. he's blind, basically. So he flounders ahead in a sort of creeping run he's so used to thinking visually that he almost imagines he can see this chamber but he he
1: can't but you know this and then now Chad uh, this is the point that I would say yeah I I would go back up (laughs) just because I mean it's dark what's the point you're not going to discover anything in the darkness you need you need some flipping light
2: and then in a moment of indescribable emotion I did see it there came a gradual glow ahead And all at once I knew that I saw the dim outlines of the corridor and the cases, revealed by some unknown subterranean phosphorescence. This hall was no relic of crudity like the temples in the city above, but a monument of the most magnificent and exotic art. Rich, vivid, and daringly fantastic designs and pictures formed a continuous scheme of mural painting whose lines and colors were beyond description. The cases were of a strange golden wood with fronts of exquisite glass and contained the mummified forms of creatures outreaching in grotesqueness the most chaotic dreams of man. They were of the reptile kind, with body lines suggesting sometimes the crocodile, sometimes the seal, but more often nothing of which either the naturalist or the paleontologist ever heard. In size, they approximated a small man, and their forelegs bore delicate and evidently flexible feet, curiously like human hands and fingers. But strangest of all were their heads, which presented a contour violating all known biological principles. To nothing can such things be well compared. In one flash, I thought of comparisons as varied as the cat the bulldog, the mythic satyr, and the human being.
0: I love it when he jumbles up all sorts of incongruous creatures.
2: You know,
1: it gets your imagination going, but it makes it very indistinct. So it makes it yeah. creepy. Like it suggests I, a lot without describing anything. Right, and I think that's one of the cool things. It's like in a, in a horror film, how? how once you see the creature, it's not scary anymore. Yeah, you know, it's it becomes quantifiable. You yeah. can say, oh, it's like a gorilla with horns, or it's like right. you know, it's like a horse with a dragon's head. You know, once you can see it, you can make a judgment on it but if you don't know what it is if you can't quite put your finger on it you can't make that judgment call which is scary. You don't, know, don't you don't know what you're dealing with.
0: Also, it's great that even if you in his fiction, even when you do see it, it's so mad that you can't correlate everything all at once. You're looking at it, you're going half cat, half bat, half rhinoceros part. Uh, George his, Hamilton. Uh, one of his
1: stories, he does use he does use half three times, right? Uh, yeah, I yeah. Think so. <laughs> well, It's not. It doesn't quite make sense. Uh.
0: Well, he assumes that these creatures are some sort of totem beast. You know, they're right. not real. Yeah. And he, looking at the murals, he begins to chart what he assumes happened to the men who lived here, assuming. The men are represented by the paintings of these crocodilish right. creatures. And what the story tells them is that way before Africa rose out of the ocean, when the world was a much different place mm-hmm. geologically, this was actually a, like a seaside community. Yeah. This was an a oceanside town. Like Santa Barbara. Yeah, exactly. This was Santa Barbara. The waters unfortunately shrank away over time right. and it, it became desert. And because of this, uh, they probably perceived it as their own global warming or whatever. The civilization right. struggled to stay intact, and eventually their prophets said, we have to dig deep down into the earth and, and get away from the surface. It's mm-hmm. the only way our race is going to survive. One thing he finds strange as he studies their paintings, he notices that there are no real references to natural death. People die in wars and as a result of calamity, sure, but no natural death, which is strange.
1: Also strange that he's gleaning all of this information from some pictures. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, how is that communicated I don't know. in a picture that people aren't dying of natural death? Death. Well, I think
0: it's because there's no... He might think, well, in hieroglyphs, usually there'll be some kind of funereal rites. That's a staple of uh, Egyptian... Sure. And be, the mere absence of it is what he said. But, I don't know. You're right. It's, but
1: He talks about that they, That there is unnatural death, yeah. so there would be funerary rites. Yeah, so what is what is there in the frescas that... I just I thought it was funny.
0: It is funny. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, So he, he continues to study the paintings, and he sees that as the reptile creatures had to abandon their city, they grew more hostile toward the upper realms. And there, there's even a painting now. Finally, a man does show up in one of these mm-hmm. things. And there's a painting of them ripping this man, possibly some explorer or something like that, just ripping uh-huh. him to pieces. To,
1: yeah, apart. Yes. Grizzly.
0: Um, so he finally, he goes along this passage. He gets to the end of the passage and finds yet another open gate, mm-hmm. which leads to this infinite sort of fulgent mist. Which is but, luminescent. Just kind of like the, uh, the gate in uh, Ex Oblivione. Yeah, none of them like the gate. He likes this image of the gate with the uh, smoke machine behind it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, yeah, and the floodlights. There's a steep flight of steps within that gate, but he really can't see too far. Down them. And, you know, here he pauses and he thinks back to the those strange low ceilings of the rooms he's explored. And he thinks, you know, maybe the people even imitated these crawling
1: creatures they idolized. Right,
0: right. Which is actually a pretty creepy image. You know? That is pretty creepy. So they, they put themselves
1: on the ground and kind of wriggle around because they wanted to be more like these. Uh, that's not, I don't know if that's a very scientific uh, conclusion that it comes to.
0: No, but... And, and at this point, it seems pretty obvious, yeah. you know, that these creatures actually lived here. But I try to think... Uh, You know, he's got a scientific mind, and and as a scientist, he's simply pursuing the most likely interpretation
1: first. It is more likely that that human beings acted that way. That there would be some other uh, kind of
0: crocodile people. And I think that he's spending this time contemplating because he's scared, and he's he's trying to get up the nerve to go down through this next gate. And then while he's contemplating, he hears something.
2: Mm -hmm. It was a deep, low moaning, as of a distant throng of condemned spirits and came from the direction in which I was staring. Its volume rapidly grew, till soon it reverberated frightfully through the low passage, and at the same time I became conscious of an increasing draft of cold air, likewise flowing from the tunnels and the city above.
0: And at first, that actually makes him feel better. He says a natural phenomenon tends to dispel broodings over the unknown. Right.
2: But... (laughs) More and more madly poured the shrieking, moaning night wind into that gulf of the inner earth. I dropped prone again and clutched vainly at the floor for fear of being swept bodily through the open gate into the phosphorescent abyss. Such fury I had not expected, and as I grew aware of an actual slipping of my form toward the abyss, I was beset by a thousand new terrors of apprehension and imagination.
1: Yeah, so this wind is kind of pushing him, blowing him into this glowing mist that's yeah. at the bottom oh, of this gosh. you know, my, miles deep hole. And I can't help it, it reminds me of Evil Dead too. you know, when Ash
0: is getting oh. pulled towards. It just did <laughs> immediately, I can't help it. I imagine, you know, all the, the kitchen sink flying past him in the car.
1: How do I stop this thing? Oh,
0: and he screams, yeah. you know, but it's lost in, as he says, the hellborn babble of the howling wind uh-huh. rains, <laughs> And then he begins babbling that couplet over and over.
2: That is not dead which can eternal lie strange eons even death may die that is not dead which can eternal lie and with strange eons even death may die that is not dead which can eternal lie and with strange eons even death may die that is not dead which can eternal lie and with strange eons even death may die. the wind is, is trying to pull a down which an abyss
0: and he says and at that point in the story only the desert gods know what really took place Uh uh-huh. Uh he doesn't know how he survived this but the details he does remember are pretty
2: I have said that the fury of the rushing blast was infernal, cacodemaniacal, and that its voices were hideous with the pent-up viciousness of desolate eternities. Presently, those voices, while still chaotic before me, seemed to my beating brain to take articulate form behind me. And down there in the grave of unnumbered, eon-dead antiquities, leagues below the dawnlit world of men. I heard the ghastly cursing and snarling of strange-tongued fiends. Turning, I saw outlined against the luminous ether of the abyss what could not be seen against the dusk of the corridor. A nightmare horde of rushing devils, hate-distorted, grotesquely panoplied, half-transparent, devils of a race no man might mistake, the crawling reptiles of the nameless city wind died away, I was plunged into the ghoul-peopled blackness of Earth's bowels. For behind the last of the creatures, the great brazen door clanged shut with a deafening peal of metallic music, whose reverberations swelled out to the distant world to hail the rising sun as Memnon hails it from the banks of the Nile.
1: So basically, these little crocodile guys are still down there doing their thing.
0: What happens exactly in that la- in that paragraph, though? I, I, so he he passes through the gate? No, no, no. I, or it clangs he... shut before he can get sucked through.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that he, that they that the winds are blowing, and he could see them inside there, kind of you know snarling and biting, scrambling, him for and him. scrambling for him. And then the wind. I'm guessing that the gust of winds that maybe if they opened, you know, opened in towards or out towards mm-hmm. him. That the wind, you know, blew, blew them closed, oh and it, that when once those closed, he was able to, you know, the wind stopped, and he was yeah. able to get out of there.
0: Lovecraft tactfully leaves out the part where he scrambles back up the stairs, peeing his pants the whole (laughs) time in an unnameable amount of pants peeing. And that's
1: the the end of the story. That is the end of the story. And when was this story? It was written in January of uh, 1921, but wasn't published until November Mm -hmm. in The Wolverine. Some people say that he based this kind of off of a, you guessed it, Dunstany Mm -hmm. tale, The Probable Adventure of Three Literary Men. What do you think? I think it's... um, I kind of like it. I think it's cool. But it it does go on uh, quite a bit. And it doesn't really explore any new ideas. Mm -hmm. You know? It's basically... There could have been a civilization before humanity and a species before humanity, which is going to play later on into Lovecraft's works. You know, yeah. like there's a lot about protagonists discovering uh, whole races of, of, right. of people. Like or, Rats on r- the Walls. I like think Rats on the, the Walls, the... Uh, Mountains of Madness, us well, Out of Time. Yeah, and even
0: this, you know, has Shades of Juan Romero in it as well, the uh, descent into the abyss. And then there's some kind of ritualistic stuff happening. Oh, there. right. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. <sighs> This is funny because I, I just listened to uh, James Holloway's lecture uh, mm-hmm. that he did at Treadwell's, which is on YogSantos.com, mm-hmm. and he talks about this uh, specifically. A lot of this horror of, of Lovecraft's um, is our identity is so much based on who we you know who we are and our cultures and our mm-hmm. you know our culture's history. And these discoveries of things before us it changes who we are. And we've I mean we I think we've talked about this a little bit yeah. doing our, our our third German. and that's like a horrific thing. I mean, Lovecraft takes a lot of pride in his New England heritage, right and to somehow undermine what it is what it means to be a New Englander uh you know what it means to be human Mm -hmm. you know it's like we were you know we're the best race that's ever existed on the planet but you know check this out there was something here that existed before us and Mm -hmm. and guess what still exists now we kind of see that in his dream world stuff where where these ancient civilization like you know ib and and sarnoth and those places Mm -hmm. they exist which we'll find out later in the dream realms yeah and they're still thriving communities so somehow they exist in the ancient past and then they somehow make an impression on the collective unconsciousness of humanity. So when, when our dreams, these places are still actual real places. That yeah,
0: time up. itself is a foldable dimension. You know, all time is actually happening. Simultaneously, in a right. respect, and it just depends on your access point. So, what's happening 1,000 years ago is also happening now. If you can enter it through the dream world, you can be there 1,000 years ago
1: and also be here now. It's sort
0: of like Polaris was like that. Right, uh huh. Um,
1: it's, it's, um, this is freaking cool stuff, man. Yeah. yeah.
0: One yeah. thing about this, too, that, you know, on a personal level, reminded me of the first time you hear a statistic, and I don't know what they are. You know, every five minutes, somebody is murdered in the United States, or every two minutes, somebody's raped or whatever. Yeah. The minute that got into my head, I would be at the movies or eating as a uh-huh. kid, and I would suddenly think, how can I be enjoying this? Somebody's suffering somewhere. There's terrible things going on in the world right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, And I can't do anything about them. How, how can I enjoy this, uh, my Darwiner schnitzel, when somebody's being murdered and... <laughs> In uh, Delaware, I don't know, but it, it, it's it's the same. Um, I don't know. I feel like sometimes Lovecraft's reaching there.
1: How can we enjoy life when right under the surface it's seething with monsters? You know, right. <laughs> I think he really feels that way on a level like we we exist on this little planet in mm-hmm. this really big universe. And I was just uh, listening to some astronomers talking about uh, the age of the universe mm-hmm. and how we can see the most distant galaxy is. I think they said something like. 24 billion light years or two two billion light years which means it took that light two billion light years to get from where it is to to us now so the location of it is not there anymore it's moved you know an incredible distance so they're trying to calculate from where it was and then figure out the math to figure out the actual size of our universe Mm -hmm. and to even try and think about how big like the distance from even the earth to the moon is really far. Yeah. Like you would have to I think you have to drive around the earth 20 or 30 times, like you know, if to travel that distance to, the, mean, moon. to the moon. Cuz the moon's actually pretty flipping far away. If yeah, it's
0: 233,000 miles away. Yeah,
1: if you look at that's a, that's far. Yeah. If you look at a, a scale, you know, scale picture of the moon and a scale picture of the earth and you see the distance of how actually far away, it's it's pretty far. Yeah. Cuz it looks pretty close, you know, yeah. when you look up at the sky.
0: It's just like when I'm in Las Vegas and I think, "Oh, I'll just walk down from one end of this casino to the other and they go wait a minute (laughs) this is
1: huge
0: this isn't just a regular hotel (laughs) it's just like that (laughs) we discussed a um a blog before called hp lovecraft and his legacy i did have some time to dig into that more it's pretty good but i when i was looking at this story i found another blog called the nameless city oh uh described as a blog of lovecraftian horror and there was some interesting stuff on there too so i'll I'll put the oh yeah put put the link in the show notes if anybody wants to investigate the Nameless
1: City themselves. I love investigating Nameless Cities. So next week... Next week we're doing uh, another double feature, but this will be the double, last double feature for a while. I know we're trying to get through some of these earlier stories. They're very short, but we're getting closer to some of Lovecraft's yeah, bigger Yeah, man. We got The Outsider
0: marks. coming up soon, and Reanimator uh-huh. coming up soon. But but these are two... Actually, I like both of these stories. Uh,
1: the Quest of Iran and The Moon Bog. The Moon Bog. I more good moon stuff i there's more moon there's gonna yeah. be some more moon i want to thank andrew lehman again for rocking the reading and with that i am chris lackey
0: i'm chad pfeiffer
1: and this is the hp lovecraft literary podcast hppodcraft.com
0: hppodcraft.com,
1: hppodcraft.com.